welcome to Students of Life Radio Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. Take it from there. Um, Sounds good. So I guess I'll ask again, how are you doing today? I am doing good. Thank God that all of the weed whackers outside of my window stopped before we started recording because I would not envy you the editing process of trying to cut out essentially assorted construction noises. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the weed whackers, I need wood to knock on. There we go. They just stopped outside my place too, which is very fortuitous. So I suppose the, the um, I always talk about because I do a lot of beach cleaning and sometimes the beach clean gods bestow you know, good weather or trash gifts on me. The podcast gods as well sometimes bestow lack of noise on you when you record, I, I, I think. I don't know, maybe. I've definitely run afoul of the podcast gods for a while yeah. because in some of the old softwares we would use, we'd get through the whole episode and at the very, very end, there would be a recording glitch and it would just all be gone. Or it would choose <laughs> right. not to record somebody's audio. And so, like one time it was one of our hosts who actually does the editing and mm-hmm. so... God bless him. He like reverse reconstructed his role in the podcast and then like recorded his little mm-hmm. Yeah. Like bits oh, to wow. add back in. It was an impressive commitment to actually putting that thing up because I probably would have just been like, eh, this is a bit of an L, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's dedication plus. That's that's a new grading category for me. There's there's B A dedication plus. I think that's that's that. Because I Whew, that might that might fry whatever wherewithal I have left. <laughs> to do yeah, I, I would like have that. given up. I've definitely become lazier since graduating from undergrad. This is mm-hmm. a huge thing I've noticed where like before I would just pour all of the effort into any mm-hmm. stupid thing I had to do. And now I've just been like, mm, I'm just not going to do that. And it's really yeah. changed my life for the better. Well, you have to choose and delegate, especially as you move mm-hmm. into or branch into more creative things, but there's also life things. Because looking back, I don't know how I did everything that I did in college. Like I worked full time. I went to school full time. As far as I remember, I I partied full time. Like I had a good time. Like I, (laughs) you know, I hung out like I was doing stuff, social stuff. I I don't have time for pretty much any of those things today. (laughs) I don't know where that time went. I I assume so because I've always loved to sleep. I wouldn't have done that not slept i don't think i I think some people get away with it in college by just not sleeping yeah but i have also always been a person who just needed sleep so i definitely think that the need to actually knock out for like six to eight to ten hours of the day (laughs) give or always put a yeah has always put a a damper on my productivity well anyway speaking of uh productivity and recording this episode thanks for joining me uh yeah, of course. I'm, of course, joined today. Uh, I'll probably have your name either in the episode title or episode description, certainly. But we're joined by Gabby Panicia. 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 Oh, my God. We went over this before the episode. <laughs> so I would get well, it. Well, then we, then we got confused about like the uh, like authentic Italian saying. So right. I, I don't blame you. Right. Which I And I always tell my students, uh, I apologize for getting your name wrong, but I know what it's like because I've gotten all manner of variations where i say none of those letters are pretty much in my name so um i appreciate mm-hmm. you be, not only being here but appreciate um 
accepting the name butchering because uh, it, it, I know it must happen. <laughs> it's all the time. And yeah. this is far from the worst. Like my last name always stops people. But the yeah. weird one from when I was growing up in Maryland is mm-hmm. my name is Gabrielle, full name, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. And mm-hmm. people would look at that and go, Gabriel. Oh, that's... That's, yeah, and it's it's a little weird because there's like the extra L E. Right, right. That's but, an that's an interesting take. Yeah, I once yeah. regularly got from like one teacher in like middle school, Gabriel Panica. And I was like, that is that just it's not a name, man. That sounds like a, a sort of southern variation, maybe, or southernish mm-hmm. variation. Because I, I something like that. I, I was actually I grew up in I well, I moved to New York when I was like nine, but I grew up in Florida, which I probably shouldn't admit publicly because it's, it's embarrassing i'm but. also a recovering floridian are so. you really yeah i was born in florida yeah I'm we're born in florida, florida. spent uh boca oh okay yeah i'm from pembroke pines down south okay so yeah yeah it's uh <laughs> I, everyone i know who escaped from florida reluctantly admits that they once came from florida right yeah i was only ever a florida boy never a florida man thankfully yeah. so, <laughs> you know <laughs> that's sort equally of the, same thank god yeah that's sort of the saving grace but anyways um yeah, so we're here. We're safe. We're <laughs> we're in New York. Um, no, Florida's great. I love it. I love everybody, especially if they're listening from Florida. Um, anyways, nice save. Yeah, you got to try. You know. Um, so yeah, I uh, I wanted to have you on the podcast because in talking to some students, former students of mine who have graduated, gone on to do lots of interesting things. Your sort of uh, response when I contacted you really stood out to me for a couple of reasons. And in particular, if I think about what the what types of fields my students are often in and what they study, a lot of times it's very hard sciences. It's students in health sciences, engineering, computer science, uh, biology, all, all those sorts of fields. But I also do get students, and I feel like in some ways I get more and more students who are in different types of communication related fields or they're doing communications related work whether in relation to science or just in other ways i've had some students respond as well who are in communications media journalism that type of stuff mm-hmm. and i think that's really interesting too to sort of see that diversity of experience with where some of these students are starting from and where they're sort of ending up so yeah i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that just sort of Um, the work that you do and maybe how you sort of navigated your way to currently that, that type of work from, you know, where maybe you started out going back to college and what you thought maybe your path might be going back then. Yeah. So back in undergrad, I was a biochem major Aha. and I was, yeah, I was one of the science people (laughs) and I technically still am one of the hard science people. Um, So right now I'm getting my PhD at the Rockefeller University and I work in a pretty well-known virology lab. And so I always really liked communication and writing, but my parents did kind of talk me out of it for an undergrad degree. They were like, listen, you also really like science. One of these things you can't do without this degree. And one of these things you can worm your way into if you still are really passionate about it. So I kind of kept some side threads at as I was studying my face off throughout all of undergrad, where I at one point was the editor of Stony Brook's literary magazine. Um, so I worked on Spoke the Thunder uh, and was you know, helping with all like the creative submissions and stuff like that. And I sort of had this continual thread that I liked creative writing. I took some creative writing classes at college and I liked 
translating science, essentially in the way that, you know, my parents are not scientists. My dad's an engineer, an electrical engineer, and my mom is, uh, was a real estate agent. So they don't exactly have the most extensive science background. And my dad, even though he's an engineer, often struggles to sort of understand the different way that uh, basic science, where you're studying just to learn more knowledge, differs from engineering, where you're actually building something that has to serve a purpose. Mm. And so I really actually had to hone some level of science communication skills just so I could come home and tell my parents what I was doing at school and sort of (laughs) prove that the education was working. And so after that, when I went to uh, graduate school, that was all something in the back of my mind that, you know, I really liked talking to people about science. I would like to continue to do those things. And then a global pandemic hit, specifically a global viral pandemic. And I'm a virologist. I Mm. study viruses. That is like my whole job. I've been doing it even since I was uh, in my undergrad. I worked for like three and a half years in a lab at Stony Brook. So it wound up being like a time where virologists were in short supply And I got snagged by my university science outreach program to do some programming for kids of like different age groups. So we had like a really young group, like a K through like fifth grade group, then like a middle school group and a high school group. And then we had one final like town hall that was a community that was organized by the other woman I was running the program with uh, from Rocky DU. And it was sort of just like a town hall where a lot of people, adults, kids, nobody kind of knew how to understand, you know, just the basic virology that had no framework to understand the new research that was coming out. And usually the framework was just panic, like something new unfolds panic. Um, So this was kind of trying to explain enough to make people feel equipped to understand some of the new research that was coming out, the new developments, and not just freak out. And in the audience of that town hall, was a lot of students who were sort of just sent there by their teachers because they had no virtual lessons plans. It was like the first like two weeks of the pandemic. And two of those students were the twin daughters of Professor Matthew Stanley uh, from New York University, my co-host now on the podcast, What the If. So I got sort of yanked in to do a set of similar episodes with them. And then we just kind of got got on like a house on fire. Like we really just like all kind of meshed. Uh, liked talking with each other, liked doing our thought experiments of the week. And my specific job sort of during the pandemic was I would read whatever primary literature, like whatever piece of pa- of like whatever journal article had just come out with new research about the virus that sort of the news was kind of freaking out about or freaking people out about. And I would read it and I would explain like the limitations of the study. Mm. I felt a little bit like a broken record because so much of my stuff was like, don't panic, don't panic. <laughs> like it, 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 we're not dealing with like, the end times. Right, like, right. And I, I kind of was just like, wear your mask, small groups, test so that, you, you know, test before you go home for the holidays so you don't give the virus to Gam Gam. But it was, it was and honestly has been uh, a really great way to force me to learn how to talk science to people who aren't scientists because we get caught up in an echo chamber of talking science only to other scientists. And even sometimes I have to like take a step back and be like, this is gibberish to anybody who has not been immersed in this for, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah. None of that is surprising in the sense of it. You know, so many of these points that you make, it's so almost like reaffirming to hear 
because yeah. these are so like exactly the things I tell my students in terms of, you know, I mean, even going back to what you were saying initially, you start in this one place and you sort of navigate and there's so many different ways, so many different um, pathways or directions that you can navigate in depending upon like, well, you know, what are your interests, but also what are the extensions within your, your field or, or the fields that you're actually studying and you're actually working within. But also the fact that you don't know where a lot of that leads. I love what you mentioned as well about how sometimes you're giving a lecture, you're giving a talk, or you're just meeting people or networking in different ways, and you don't know who's listening, right? You mm -hmm. don't know who's in yeah. the audience, and you don't know what further connections that might make. And it speaks to like why communication is so important in general, because if you can make certain salient points, if you can engage others in certain ways where it gets people's attention, you don't know what that... Um, leads to further based upon who's actually listening. That that sort of happened to me a few years ago, right before the pandemic, where a friend was at a conference and she said, oh, we're doing some readings. Why don't you come by, read from, I had a beach cleanup guidebook of, you mm, know, just like, cool. yeah. And she's like, why don't you come and read from that? And I said, sure, what the heck? I don't have anything to do that night. And in the <laughs> audience was somebody who um, she organized uh, TEDx events and she was there and she heard it. And then I got involved with them and I wound up doing a TEDx talk about beach clean experiences. I developed a whole other lecture with that. Oh, so it's so was, cool. Yeah, it was like, and, and again, it was like one sort of example of communication leading to a, a bigger opportunity sort of. So I, I think that's such a, it's, it's almost one of the struggles, I think, in education and academia, especially, is making clear to people the efficacy of these sort of qualitative um, benefits, right? It, that's not something that you can really quantify, like opportunities for further experiences in some ways. Um, but it is weird. They're there. It's like, they're, yeah, they're, so, they're definitely there. And like, sometimes you get so caught up in like the environment that you're in where nobody knows about them because everybody's just following this set career trajectory on rails. Yes, right. So it's it's been interesting as a, a PhD student trying to find other things because I'm in an academic heavy lab that trains predominantly academics or industry postdocs or industry, mm -hmm. you know, PIs. And then when I'm goofing around, they're saying, oh, I think I might do science journalism. People look <laughs> at me like I have like six heads. They're yeah, like, right. Yeah, it, it's an interesting nexus in, in that sense, I think, as well. And something else you mentioned that I really appreciated was the idea of trying to communicate limitations to studies. I mean, that's something that I straight up teach in my freshman writing composition classes more and more, I feel like. And it was an interesting thing, especially to consider during the pandemic, where I, I don't know if people or students assume that, oh, it's published, so it's it's real and it's true and it's accurate. But I'm like even read the abstracts, they'll straight up say, we really, you, this is our best guess, or this is mm -hmm. what we can sort of start to investigate further, right? It's it's not necessarily that um, a lot of um, the information coming out in many circumstances is is definitive in that sense. It's trying to lead to, you know, further investigation, exploration, whatever the case might be. But in general, yeah, it, it's and it's almost like frustrating because students sometimes they're like, wait, what do you mean? It doesn't tell me everything I need to know. And I'm like, well, you need to start to synthesize and assess, you know, what can you say definitively versus, you know, what more do you need to try to find or what more needs to be discovered within the field in relation to this topic, all that sort of stuff. So it's great to hear from that perspective as well, because it's absolutely something that I feel like is such a practical um, oh, yeah. tangible real world application of skill that is sort of, um, I think it's, it's frustrating or confusing 
sometimes a lot for young people, um, especially when I, I feel like I have this theory that, you know, when I was when I was in college, I mean, I still felt like you would get stuff sometimes that didn't work. And I feel like more and more what I mean by that is that the last phone I got, all of a sudden, just all <laughs> my shit was on it. Like my contacts, my pictures, everything mm-hmm. just magically transferred over. And there's almost this like user expectation that everything yeah. is, is going to just come out as, as, a, as a fine-tuned, polished product. But research isn't really like that a lot. No. And it is funny too, because like there's, you know, there's peer reviewed published research that I disagree with. Right. That I think that like their main conclusions are an artifact of the way that they're working. Right. Which is kind of a funny thing to have to say that like, oh, there's this paper came out. And like, you know, if you're talking about it with, you know, in my case, my committee, the people that decides whether or not I graduate from my PhD (laughs) program. And they're like, oh, well, why don't you think this thing that you're studying works like mm-hmm. this based on this paper? And I was like, well, I think that paper's garbage. Right. And and then proceed to outline exactly why. And right. I'm like, oh, I think that this is what they're observing, not actually what right. they think they're observing. And then my committee was like, oh, okay, I think you might be right. But it is right. weird that you have to read a text with that level of skepticism. It's almost like an unreliable narrator. Like, yes, mm. this person has a PhD, but because it's in their best interest to take that research and sell it, as best as possible and to tell that story well, you kind of have to keep it in the back of your head that, well, there's a lot of stuff that they're excluding or sweeping under the rug mm. because they want to publish it. They need something to show for the ridiculous amount of money that it costs to just do science. So that has kind of changed the way that I, I read papers a little bit. Not necessarily trying to tear it apart, but always a little bit of like, all right, I assume that this is not that this is the most ideal experiment they had. Maybe it's a little bit muddier than the way they're portraying it. Yeah, that was something that I remember I used to show some uh, John Oliver clips from, uh, what was it, Last Week Tonight, the show that he does? Mm -hmm. And he he had a really good one about scientific studies, um, specifically. And one of the things that they pointed out was about replication studies versus Mm -hmm. other research and how, well, People trying to get, I, I, I don't know enough about the nuances of how that all works, but it seems like there's a lot of nuance as to how that works and how people are trying to secure funding. And um, basically the point I, I intuited from that was that, yeah, replication studies weren't as sort of um, saucy. They weren't as sort of, you know... Um, tempting for for certain types of researchers at least so Mm -hmm. they were trying to publish all sorts of um initial research i guess to try to you know get sourced as as headlines and that sort of thing um again that might be very different now compared to then or by different um you know particular types of research i'm not entirely sure but it made sense to me from like an academic standpoint where i was like oh yeah you would want to you know be publishing this new you know i guess in in some capacity or context interesting stuff um so i thought yeah, that was and interesting that is 100 percent how it works where it is yeah you know if, if you want your own lab you have to right. have some sort of like high impact first author publication. Essentially, that means right. that your name is first. You were the main driver of that research. Right. It was your idea, your project. You shaped it. And if you're just repeating somebody else's results, nobody's going to give you an entire lab to do that. They want to say like, well, what is your nice, shiny contribution of science? Why mm. should you deserve to enter the ivory tower mm. or to take up residence there? And it's, it's, it's difficult, especially since science is becoming increasingly cooperative and in more and more of like a, a huge multi-person venture. It's, it's funny. I look at like old papers from 
the university, we have a course in the first year of our PhD where we have to read old scientific papers, like really, really seminal, like core things in the field, like DNA is heritable, like that kind of old paper. And there's like two, three dudes on it. There's like maybe one figure, two figures, a chart. And now looking at like the stuff that some of my lab has put out that publishing in like, you know, big journals, it's like 16 people, 30 graphs. It's huge. And the the expectations for the bare minimum of science is increasing exponentially that you can't publish something small and replicate replicative, even if it is important. Everybody's just sorting shooting for whatever the big next big sexy thing is that they can publish. Yeah. And so do you think that's, that is a product at least in some sense of just more people trying to get that, get their names out there and establish themselves or like, why do you think that's, is it because there's just so many more people involved in the field? Is it other things? I think it's a combo, right? Where there's yeah. a lot more people in science than there used to be. It used to mm -hmm. be, you know, like a hundred dudes max <laughs> right, across yeah. the country yeah. who all knew each other. So right, like once right. you graduated your PhD, yeah. they, you'd, your PI would send a letter to somebody and they'd be like, oh, we have a, a opening at this university for a professor. And then you'd go right from like PhD to professor somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think too, it's, it's just sort of the nature of the field now because, you know, we tend to be answering more pointed questions, like much smaller. And I don't necessarily mm. mean that in terms of significance, but, you know, we know some of the big answers now. There are big answers right. to be solved at extremely high detailed scale that are hard to do if you're just only one person. So now things involve massive computation, uh, really high throughput studies that use like all of these omics techniques, genomics, proteomics. Each one of those is kind of a difficult thing to master on its own. And if you're expecting to publish a paper that has like three or four of those different techniques in it, that's a truly ludicrous amount of information for just one person to know and to master. So intrinsically, the amount of people working on things has to increase so that one person can be an expert in one field that's being used. And then they all come together to actually push a project out. Yeah, it doesn't sound complicated at all. Sounds, yeah, sounds, you sounds know, very it's just straightforward. really straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that raises another interesting question, which is, I mean, it's a question that I'm always thinking about because I, I obviously, you know, my work's very different in some senses, I think, from what you do. But at the same time, you have a podcast as well. And mm -hmm. that's something where it, it, podcasting, I feel like, so it's one of those things where I've done different podcasts in the past and people it's almost like being an author in the sense that people come to you with ideas i sort of feel like a comedian sometimes where somebody says <laughs> i have this great joke you should tell right people say like yeah. i have this great story idea you should just write or great novel idea you should write and same thing with podcasts they're like i have a great idea for a podcast and i say all right so start a podcast because people think you hit the record button and then you play around for an hour and then it's published magically and writing does not work that mm -hmm. way. And publishing writing does not work that way. Same thing with research, obviously. And podcasting certainly doesn't work that way. Um, so I'm a little curious about your experience with that, with sort of getting into podcasting. Um, I, I mean, really everything. I mean, you know, because I know you said you met those others and you sort of started a podcast from there but how did you how did that process sort of manifest i guess uh initially 
Yeah, so I have to say, I was a bit lucky in the fact that they, the podcast was going before I joined. It was about a two-year-old podcast that was going before I joined. So the two original hosts, uh, Philip Shane, who's a documentary filmmaker, and Matthew Stanley, who's a professor of science history at NYU, they'd been working together on a documentary. I think how they first met, I think it was a few years before, uh, it was on a History Channel documentary about Einstein. So mm. Matt studies a lot of the history of relativity and just like seminal discoveries in physics and how those came about, were developed, you know, who each scientist was working with at the time. And so they they kind of had the idea and they were talking around like, yeah, you know, we, we'd like to do some more science communication-y things. And they had the idea based on the way that Einstein used to conduct his experiments to essentially run thought experiments each week. So Einstein was kind of famous for it. He couldn't really test his gigantic theories of relativity himself. So to, to develop them, he would run thought experiments. He would think his way through some sort of hypothetical situation, and that would be sort of how he'd run it. And then later, an actual physical experiment would be done to sort of prove whether or not his conclusion was correct. And so we kind of had the thought of doing that where we, well, we, I'm retroactively including myself in the we, yeah. <laughs> Matt and Phil Retcon had the idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Matt and Phil had the idea to do that and, and do thought experiments to approach sort of different zany questions, but then apply actual science to them and use it as a, a teaching tool. So like our tagline is using science fiction to teach real science. And so then when they were sort of always looking for somebody who had like, you know, maybe like the biology realm of things, because mm. Matt did his first, uh, he has a PhD in physics. So he was a former physicist who then jumped to history. And so he can explain the physics amazingly. The physics and the history is really his corner. Um, but they were kind of hunting for somebody who might have more of the biology side of things. And so then when they heard me talk and, you know, I wound up being on the podcast for a bit, I was a good fit for the biologist that they'd been hunting for for a while. So it was really serendipitous, but I know they, when they started out, it was, it's definitely a little bit of like a, a creative struggle, right? Where like in talking to Phil, the first, I think 10 episodes, he said, they don't actually appear as the first 10 episodes of What the If on Spotify because he mm. didn't like them. Like they, sure, they yeah. you know, it took about 10 episodes to get a good, a good idea of what the podcast was going to sound like, what the rhythm was going to be. So he eventually, I think, sprinkled them back in with like different numbers into the organization of the show. So they probably just stand out as slightly weird. But he's like, I don't want people. He found out that people would go and actually start once they caught the podcast and caught wind of it. And they listened to like a couple of recent episodes. They'd go back to the first one. Yeah, he's like, well, I don't right. want the first ones to be when we were just figuring out what we wanted the show to be. But launching anything is, I think, really hard. I also write fiction and much like Phil not publishing the first 10 episodes of the show, you are not going to, my first however many novels are not going to see the light of day <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah, that's that's something I tell students all the time that I've done way more writing that will never be published than the published stuff is. It's almost, I, I think of the published work because I'm a fiction writer as well. And I, I tell students it's almost uh, synonymous with athletes right everybody in mm -hmm. high school thinks they're going to be a professional athlete the published work my published work are the professional athletes of all my other writing <laughs> that just kind of didn't really go anywhere in, in that realm or that capacity yeah um, there's some there's some stuff safe on my drive that's definitely like the epitome of like middle school track and field student writing <laughs> right <laughs> and some of it you do come back to like i have come back to stories that i wrote going back to uh graduate school for example and and re-sort of fitted them and, and gotten them published but 
uh, it has to all click at the right time for the right audience and the right capacity. Um, and that can, you know, that can be a hit or miss process, certainly a lot of times. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's so interesting, too, that you mentioned. I, I love the idea of that podcast as well. I had an idea with my brother, we were going to do a podcast, uh, but it just hasn't taken yet mm. called Would You Bl- Would You Blather, which is like <laughs> just doing a Would You Rather for every episode and then just rambling madness about it because you know he's kind of a sci-fi reader and i'm kind of a speculative ish fiction writer so i feel like that could work really well but i love this idea where sort of your podcast goes that you're looking at it with that sort of um scientific intuition right that that scientific uh, sort of contextualization one of the youtube I, I mean i feel like you see a lot of this on platforms like youtube one of the mm-hmm. my favorite channels uh i don't even know how to pronounce it uh Kurzigat in a nutshell yes yeah one of my favorite channels which all of a sudden a student pointed out there's all these videos about how they're like this propagandist arm for bill gates and the billionaires all of a sudden so I, yeah, maybe I, I haven't watched any recently yeah i started diving into that rabbit hole because they have accepted like support from these um organizations i guess and individuals over time but they argue they're still user supported user donation supported it gets like so crazy complicated i mean that speaks Mm -hmm. to again they did a really interesting video where they sort of like they acknowledge that they're like yeah we do get funding from big sort of um entities like that but we're also largely user supported uh ad revenue that sort of stuff but that that was a sort of cool video because it shows the behind the scenes and they're like, yeah, the actual video, the final product that you see is the culmination of so many hours of research, you know, so many hours of uh, editing, you know, all that stuff that w- we sort of know when we do something like this, when you're trying to produce something like that. But they, they what I li- love about their channel is that they do basically... Um, some I feel like they've been doing more and more of them, these hypotheticals. What if the moon fell to the earth? What would happen? Mm-hmm. And they get into the science of, well, it actually wouldn't, depending upon the speed, right? It would hit the, um, what do they call it? The, the Roche limit or whatever, where it starts to break apart. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and it would just become a ring system instead. And it's like, oh, that's really cool. Obviously, it's a ridiculous question because it's not possible, <laughs> really. Um but they they get into the science. Oh, what happened? What would happen if we launched all the nukes in one spot? You know, like <laughs> these like it is crazy rabbit hole fun. questions. Yeah, yeah, because it's also fun too. Because like you know, we've gotten questions that are maybe not the most scientific, but at the same time, that's why they're amusing. Because it's like everybody has that question. Hmm. Yeah, it's like and invasive so, thoughts for science almost. <laughs> it is, and there are of course stuff that you you know you're not going to test yourself or that you know there's physically no way to test yourself. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's fun to actually be scientists and to walk through it and to use what we know of science to kind of indulge it to our best ability. And yeah. it's been fun as somebody who writes science fiction too because I've accidentally had stuff fall out of it. Like, oh, that's actually a fun idea. Like it makes me think of something in a different way. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll go write something about it or I'll just store the idea for later for when it, you know, fully crystallizes into something else. Yeah, I love to think of uh, science fiction in that way. I, I haven't studied it enough myself, but I do imagine it that one of the, I mean, really, I, I would say values of science fiction is the fact that they get these ideas out here. They take what science has done 
And I mean, I could say this as somebody who's at least published speculative fiction, and I read, I've read a lot of science fiction. Um, you know, you're taking ideas in science that do exist, but you're also speculating on others, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to expand, and those ideas, as far as I can tell, people consider them. You know, people think about them where it's like, yeah, maybe this is something that you could do, you could try. I mean, you think about, and you think about like long term stuff, like a Dyson sphere or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we should keep thinking up variations on that because maybe again, there's some sort of other way that that could work in the far future or something like that. Right. So yeah, I very much feel as if it, you know, the curiosity of, of kind of playing with science fiction is actually, it's, it's a valuable sort of precedent. I I think in, in science uh, moving forward, sort of like working together with that. Um, But was there, is there like anyone uh, if not episode, but idea that like sticks out to you from that podcast, like you were saying with some of these kind of more ridiculous, uh, but interesting kind of, you know, what if questions like any, any that really come to mind initially? Uh, well, I, I can think of one that was actually just sort of a fun cycle for me. So it was, there was a paper that came out in nature, I think in twenty. 22, 2021 or 22, somewhere around there. And it was a paper about a parasite of ants. It was a tapeworm that was actually, its proper host was a woodpecker, but its intermediate host, the host it sort of takes to get back to the woodpecker, was an ant. And that sounds boring. Why the hell are you studying ant tapeworms? (laughs) But it turns out that it had this really weird effect on the ants. It essentially made them immortal, they stopped aging, so they went, these ants, as they get older, they go from, like, this nice, like, yellow gold color to this kind of, like, dull gray. Hmm. They stopped. They went back. Now, So now you have these immortal golden ants in a population that are secreting pheromones that get them treated like the queen. And so we did a thought experiment um, to sort of be like, well, what, hap- what would happen if that sort of thing happened to people? Um, and so it was, like, kind of a zany, fanciful imagining of if uh, my co-host Matt got one of these things, the havoc that that would wreak on NYU's um, Gallatin School of Independent Study (laughs) and how that would just completely unravel the administrative capabilities of the building. Uh, And so that one was, it kind of holds a special place in my heart because there was so much parasitology that I was talking about and Mm. so much that was actually coming from the original paper, but so much of it was pure like just translation into really what would this be like for people? And then it was fun because, you know, I I had this stuck in my head for a while. I knew I wanted to do something with this concept. Um, And now I've been waiting with like every single finger crossed because I'm in like the late rounds of review at Fantasy and Science Fiction for the thing that I wrote about that. Oh, cool. Um, That's awesome. Because it, it was literally like in every possible creative way, I was excited about this piece of research scientifically, like on the podcast, in science writing. So it was a really fun thing for me to explore because I sort of got to use it for everything. And in that way, it kind of stands out as the full pipeline of everything that I've used a zany piece of science for. Yeah, I I love that. That's amazing. And and yeah, I mean, in thinking about my my own ideas for my writing, it's sort of one of the great things about science fiction, too, is that you you can start from this one place and go in these directions where it's like mm-hmm. you wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. Like there's a lot of genres of writing where like, yeah, they do that in other ways, but um, you can kind of go to places that are so original almost, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Do you have, I, I'm curious. I mean, I guess you, you don't have to share any ideas cause you wouldn't necessarily want to give them away, but do you have any <laughs> ideas for like stories that you feel like, um, are the like types of stories that you want to maybe write in the future, whether short fiction or like a novel, like, you know, I have an idea for a novel where it's generally about this subject or, or that subject. Is there anything, um, you know, connecting to some of those uh, experiences, like you already mentioned with the, you know, that example, but is there anything else that you're sort of thinking about or you would like to maybe focus on in the future? Yeah, I, I definitely have some ideas cooking, but it's interesting how fast they move away from being about the science. Mm. I, I read a lot of science fiction, so I subscribe to like Clark's World. I get their magazines like every month. And I've noticed a trend, and I, I try to read both old science fiction and modern science fiction. And I've noticed that the trend is that a lot of older science fiction is about some scientific hypothetical. Like it's it's really, really hinged on like a technology and what does that mean for people. Mm. And more I've noticed it go the other way where you have a group of people in a type of situation and what does this mean for the type of environment that they would be in. Mm. So like there was a great story that I read called Silo Sweet Silo, which was about a sentient, essentially a sentient nuke. Um, but it was... <laughs> a sentient nuke that failed to fire and now had a group of people living in its silo with it. And wow. it's it was very much about the people, not about what if there was sentient nukes. And so right, right. it's more and more of my stories now mm. are kind of predicated on that shift in newer science fiction that it's about like, what would this say about people um, rather than you know, what it would say about the technology. Like I have one story and I can yeah. kind of just loosely say it. it's about capoeira in space. Basically hmm. I play capoeira. It's an Afro-Brazilian martial art and it essentially was a product of the slave trade that people from Africa had their own, uh, martial art. And I think originally it's traced back to Angola, specifically the region that's now oh, modern wow. day Angola. And so when they were brought to Brazil as slaves, they, they couldn't openly train the martial art. So they had to hide it as a dance. But then I had the idea of like, you know, people wow. traveling through space on like a generation ship is sort of an intrinsic sci-fi trope parallel. Yeah. So what right. would that look like? What role would that take in a spaceship? And so I have an idea that I haven't fully let crystallize about that, but it's very much still about like, it's not about the science of being on a generation ship and traveling millions of years, you know, hundreds of years right. to yeah. a new star system. It's about people and it's about what it's like to be on that ship and have this specific culture on your ship. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that resonates with me so much because, I mean, in some ways, I feel like, I mean, I feel like hands down my favorite sci-fi author is definitely Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah. And it's because of exactly that, where like her sci-fi, it's about the humanity. Like it really has, in my estimation, very little, if anything, to do with the science. Like, yeah, it's just there. Yeah, it just happens to be there, and and particularly, I think, probably my favorite uh, stories of her it's the novella, um, Paradise is Lost, and it's a. I have not read that one. Yet. I ten out of ten recommend. It's about a generation okay. ship, so it's within that you know trope, but it's so there's just something about it that's so good because it's so how people would act i feel like mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's sort of this premise where it's like okay we're doing this for these reasons there's noble reasons there's all sorts everything that you would expect why people would go on a generation ship but what happens 
uh, how many generations from them eight generations it's like I, I, I don't want to spoil it, but read it and we'll, we'll, we'll talk because <laughs> okay. it's one of those things where it gets into the reality of um, humans and group dynamics that mm-hmm. you're not going to get rid of. And it it's so relevant because it's like it's one of the aspects that I don't think people consider enough about. And this is why it's such good science fiction in my in my estimation um, in doing something like going to Mars. Right. People think like, mm-hmm. oh, humans are going to go to Mars. They're going to be humans there. There will be Americans and Chinese. and No, no, no. They're going to be weird factions of Martians. Like, yeah. we don't know what's going to go on. In fact, I tried to start writing a story, a science fiction story, about uh, basically like a penal colony on Mars. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. that's totally going to happen. We're totally going to mess it up. You know, yeah. and you're going to wind up with the, this totally dystopia. Like people think, oh, yeah, there's going to be a giant, you know, 100 foot golden statue of uh, Elon Musk. And we'll have this, <laughs> you know, great utopian city. And I'm like, none of that is going to happen. Like, no, we're going to mess it up. It's going to be a disaster, <laughs> you know, but people are I, I don't even know if people will be people within a generation of being on a place like Mars. We, we like to think that. But I feel like things will change so quickly. I think it was, I saw an interview with, I think it was Chris Hadfield, the uh, Canadian astronaut. Mm -hmm. And that was something that he said. He pointed out how, um, I think think it was in relation to exactly that, that he thought people, when they go to Mars, they will not be human. They will be Martians. Because he said even being up on the space station for a while, 400 miles above Earth, that was a realization he had where somebody they started referring to earth as or the communication on earth as earth they were separate from it and that was Mm. only 400 miles floating right above it he said now imagine going you know however many millions of miles away and you don't have live stream right your communication delay Mm -hmm. at best is half an hour or whatever you're going to disassociate very quickly from that sort of initial identity especially by generation right have you ever read any of the expanse series i have not do you recommend oh my it? not only do i recommend it as one of the best works of science fiction yeah. i've read it is it does exactly what you say that oh, not really? only is there's yeah. so much about group dynamics like yes there's hardcore yeah. science fiction yes there's like all of these things that are insanely sci-fi but also so much of it is about group dynamics and so much of it is about exactly that about what people become when they go to space and how they completely disassociate from earth that it becomes sort of like this abstract yeah concept and also that people mess things up (laughs) right right and i mean i i don't see i think it is a it is an issue because i do i do see sort of that inevitability that like yeah i think we are going to go to mars i think within a generation there's going to be people i mean it depends once you get there mars is so energy poor like i don't I don't know how you have really like people think, oh, it's just it's a shitty earth. And it's like, no, it's a, no. <laughs> it, it's like <laughs> it, it's basically you're better off trying to live in Antarctica. Right. Which is obviously nobody lives there. Right. Because you have researchers, but that's, you know, sort of the extent of the habitation there because it's so inhospitable. But yeah, it, it, what happens because of all of these different um sort of environmental factors when within a couple generations you do have people who are i guess at least physically if not genetically start to be different from humans and it's like 
that's not a question I've seen anybody ask because people don't, I don't know if they don't like to think about it or they they don't think that that's on the radar, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's going to be a different trajectory. And then what happens when you have, you know, Martians and humans? Because it sounds ridiculous, right? Yeah, like <laughs> like you're talking about little green men yeah, as opposed exactly. to actual human people who but live on Mars. I feel like they're, it's going to be very, very different. And I feel like it's hard to write that far um, to, you know, speculate in a way that doesn't I mean, I'm sure people do it. I, I, I'm sure there's great sci-fi that does it, but I feel like no, for, it, for the masses, like people aren't really like tuned into that quite. Well, and it's one of these things that really, I think, kind of breaks you intrinsically, right? Because there's no safe assumption, right? In a way, yeah, like right. one of the people we had on the 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 podcast with the if was uh, Chris Carberry of the Space Drinks Association. It is a group of people essentially focused on like alcoholic beverages in space. That's amazing, and you would not believe how difficult it is to just drink a liquid in space. Right. Or not even in space, in a different gravity. So much of how right. water works and how you pour stuff is based on Earth gravity. Right. right. And so you can't write a scene on Mars where somebody goes to a bar and gets a beer and it's normal. Right, exactly. Which is just something that you like would take for granted. Like a Martian walks into a bar, start of a bad joke. Uh, but actually, so much of that experience has to be alien for yeah. an Earth-based viewer. And so that right. conversation was a little ridiculous because like realizing yeah. how little you could take for granted in that situation about just like the chemistry of like bubbles and taste at like a different gravity. Right. It was insane. And it it, it really, I think, kind of underscores that Thank God it's it's fiction because you can kind of smush over that stuff and ignore it to some extent unless mm -hmm. you're doing really, really, really hard sci-fi. But that if you really do try to thought experiment out every single part of a thing, like, yeah, the, the Martian experience is going to be so fundamentally different from yeah. Earth experience. Yeah, it's funny you say that too because that was something years ago um, where I was thinking, oh, I'll, I had an idea for a, a science fiction short story on Mars and... I thought, oh, you know, it'd be cool if we tried to terraform it, but in all the worst ways possible. So it's like, well, <laughs> we try to nuke the ice caps. That doesn't really work. But then we find like, oh, there are these fossil fuels left behind, which who knows there might be, right? Mm -hmm. um, from, you know, if there was previous biomass or something like that. And I'm like, oh, they could just start burning that to try to like, you know, thicken the atmosphere um, to create a greenhouse effect. And then as soon as I Googled it, they were like, yeah, there's no oxidizer on Mars. You can't burn, you know, you couldn't just mass burn fuel. Like it, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work because there's there's nothing to to sort of fuel that uh, chemistry. And I was like, oh, that's very different. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, obviously something like that is so interesting to think about too. The example with the beer, it's like, yeah, I didn't think of that either. So I, in some ways I'm like hesitant to write such good sci-fi because i feel like i would miss so many things i would need somebody like you i would need somebody to review it and be like okay all of this physics and chemistry is like yeah. totally wrong um and and this is what you need to address to even have the story make sense uh, but you also don't want to get too caught up in the minutiae maybe necessarily um it's hard to say it's hard to say what that balance is but that's why science fiction is so different and i think so interesting too um in the same way right yeah, I've enjoyed it too because I, I don't see this nearly as much with like genre fiction either. But science fiction I've noticed is like the most willing to break the boundaries of conventional writing. Mm. So the number of things I've read that are written in like second person yeah, is sure. actually shockingly high and they're like very effective. I, I mean, granted, I'm sure there are plenty of people writing not very effective second person stories. But 
at least the ones that are making it to market, are very effective and very interesting. And it fundamentally kind of breaks a paradigm of, of writing. There's not much written in second person. It's a very disorienting tense to read or sort of relegated only to like a choose-your-own-adventure format. Yeah. So I've seen people do some really creative things to kind of break the way that normal storytelling works. And I've seen it originate a lot in short science fiction because mm. you don't have that many pages to work with. You can do something really weird and then it's done. Yeah. You, you sort of inspired me because that's one of the reasons why I, I've moved away from novel writing. Cause I mean, first of all, it's insane to try to write a novel. I, I always yeah. tell people it's almost impossible to write a novel, let alone a good one. <laughs> like, yeah. even just finishing a bad novel is almost impossible so let alone writing a good one and the the more i get into like the nuance of um writing really good short fiction i'm like i can't do this for a full no like i can pub write and publish i think really good short fiction i i feel like i've done that but then i think about oh i could extend this into a whole novel and lose my mind in the process <laughs> yeah i just like scope yeah, you have right. to tell a story that warrants being that much longer. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember a conversation we had. I was during office hours of the writing class because mm -hmm. we'd both, I think, written a, a book at that point. Probably, and yeah. we were both, I think, editing it at that point. And mine was ridiculously long. Yes, was, I remember. It was it, it was a shocking amount of words. I remember. 432,000 yeah. words. Right. I was a lunatic. Yeah. The new draft of it that I wrote on the pandemic is like it was like 220, now it's like 208,000. Mm -hmm. It needs to be shorter again by another <laughs> like 20, 30,000 words. And yeah. it's 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 a level of lunacy that at least in short mm -hmm. fiction you can if you're going to go crazy, you go crazy for just a, a very manageable period of time. Well, and that's what I like about editing short fiction too is that when you edit something that's novel length, I mean, unless you feel very comfortable and confident in in those endpoints that you're trying to get to, it's so disorienting and almost frustrating to me. Whereas, mm -hmm. I, and I, I think part of it is, I, I this is why it makes me think that novelists are completely in, insane because <laughs> I I'm I think of myself as a perfectionist when it comes to writing, and I think a lot of mm. writers do. But I mean, I have people who've written novels where they're like, oh, yeah, my editor said just throw in a chapter. We need a chapter about this or take out this chapter. We don't want that chapter. That would like I get edits from editors sometimes for short fiction. And I'm like, I don't like that. They want to change this word, you know, <laughs> you know? let yeah, alone same. entire swaths. <laughs> and I'm like, so that sort of is disorienting to me. And when I edit a short fiction piece, I go through line by line, probably, I don't know, 20 times, maybe, which mm -hmm. is psychotic enough so the idea of ex extrapolating that extending it into a full novel i'm like i mean i would love to do it but again the the sort of bandwidth with trying to do other stuff uh, podcasting youtube short fiction is just so much more manageable for having a clear message um and i can recommend it to people you know when i tell mm. people oh i have a short story that came out it's however many words you can read it in half an hour 45 minutes an hour they're like, oh, okay, cool. And, you know, so it's somewhat more engaging in that sense, I guess. But yeah, the uh, the sort of just time management of it, uh, like kudos to you, props to you for well, that. It's funny. I, I was talking with uh, my partner about this where I think it's just a personal thing where I have to always be doing something. 
Sure. Like I'm not a person who just sits with the TV on. Like I have to like, if I'm sitting with the TV on, like just yesterday I was sewing a, a different patch onto a jacket. Mm. So like I kind of have to be doing at least two things at once. Right. But it does take up like a lot of your time. Like I just finished yeah. uh, sending off like round one edits of the novel to like my first set of beta readers. Mm. That's a whole other thing. I have like batches of different beta readers that I want different That's things great, out though. of. That's that, exactly what you want to do though. It's what you're supposed yeah. to do, but it's its right. own type of lunacy that you have to oh, yeah. like stratify your friends based on your skill set <laughs> and like what yeah. they're gonna what you're gonna get yeah. out of your friends right yeah um, absolutely but now i don't know what to do with myself it's been <laughs> a good chunk of like free time for the last yeah. like two years on and off now i'm like kind of quietly going insane because i haven't like i when i write short fiction i tend to kind of need to know where it's going yeah and so i've kind of started some stuff but i don't have the full picture and so I'm kind of quietly simmering because I want to finish them. I want to be writing. I want to be doing something, mm. but they're not ready yet. So, yeah, maybe just having any hobbies sort of drives you to a certain degree of insanity. Yeah, I I, th I think so in general. Um, that's actually something I wanted to ask now that you mention it, is if you have any advice for young writers, um, especially thinking about, you know, I do get a lot of uh, freshmen who are interested in writing. I'm actually teaching a, uh, a creative writing course next semester, a 300 oh, level cool. course. Yeah. I've, oh, I would have killed for a 300. I know. I, you know, what's course. funny is for years, students were like, why don't you teach creative writing? And I'm like, why don't you ask them to offer me one <laughs> to yeah. teach? And so I finally finagled it for next semester. So it's a, a, a creative writing, like 305 um, uh, short fiction writing class. So mm -hmm. uh, yes, Ursula K. Le Guin will be discussed Amazing. Um, yeah, she will be in it. Uh, maybe some other, you know, sci-fi. Uh, there's actually some good professors who teach sci-fi in that program, which is really cool. Um, so there's definitely an appetite for that at our university, which is awesome. But um, yeah, do you have any advice for, um, you know, thinking back to your experiences as, you know, a freshman trying to somehow tackle <laughs> <laughs> these types of things? Do you have any advice? Because I find like, I would have always, looking back in retrospect, loved any advice along those lines. Yeah. I, so I feel like it's sort of a thing of get experience wherever you can. Mm -hmm. Write constantly and don't necessarily hold yourself to like, I'm going to get into the best lit bag right away. Because yeah. not to say that you won't ever become great, but it is yeah. a weird thing to have to learn to be good at. Because you could be on a technical sentence level, perfect. Right. But something about the storytelling needs to change. And that's sort of its invisible thing. So I like suggest write constantly, always kind of be working on something. It doesn't matter the length, just something mm -hmm. is sort of a way to keep yourself and your word choice sharp and kind of try if you are interested in eventually publishing it to sort of work your way up the, the lit mag ladder. Mm. That like you can send it to stuff that's like a college magazine that's usually like very forgiving. And if you go to there, you know, when they talk up through other pieces, you can hear, you know, people talk about what does and doesn't work, which is like very constructive and helpful. And, you know, getting published there is like, OK, you have a decent command of the English language and then you try to work up. There are plenty of literary magazines that don't pay, but they're still publishing and they're also really good. So it's like, all right, well, then you try to get published there. And then slowly you can work your way up the ladder and like fine tune and figure out what people are looking for based on feedback you might get along the way. It also helps just to make other writer friends and talk to people that way. 
college, there's a lot of people who like to write and don't do it as a major. Actually, when I was running Spoke the Thunder, the literary magazine at Stony Brook, like almost everybody was some sort of biochem, chem, pre-med. I I don't think we ever had an English major. I'm not surprised by that, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, I think people want that outlet in, and it's sometimes people that you might not expect, um, if you don't know them yet, and then once you meet them, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, these people are interested in writing and publishing mm-hmm. the stuff. But that's great advice as well, because I think people I know people who going back to grad school who I think were better writers than I was, but they stopped writing and trying to publish because they did get discouraged. And maybe it was because they were shooting for these uh, magazines or journals or whatever that were a bit outside their purview, uh, especially as, you know, trying to get published a first time or something like that. So I think it is a, a sort of progressive process in that sense. Um, and it, it, it does definitely take time. And that's why I tell students as well. I'm like, uh, also don't hold back on submissions and ideas. You know? Oh yeah. Like if it's, it's almost like, um, I, I was watching, uh, the Yankees game the other day and they said that they're like, yeah, don't, you know, hold back if you're pitching. They're like, give it everything you got every pitch you're out there because if you don't and you make mistakes, you're not going to make it, you know, till, mm. till, till the end. If you're not putting out the best stuff, and that's something that I felt like I would sometimes do where I'd be like, oh, I have this idea or this even, you know, concept or, or even sometimes specific like scenes or phrases. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll save this for some other time. Uh, for the perfect story. There is no perfect story. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It won't exist. And if you're not going to get new ideas after using those up, then that's it. You're done anyways. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you should put it all out there, I think, uh, and, and explore and try new new types of writing too, I think is is really good advice as well. Um, and, and yeah, like you say, you know, publish in local stuff or, or small publishers, small presses, which are great to try to support and, you know, um, spread as well. You know, a lot of small journals out there. Uh, I was at the AWP conference earlier this year, and that was one of my favorite things was meeting people at these small journals and sort of, you know, what they're trying to focus on in terms of the voice and the types of stories and the different angles that they're approaching certain Mm -hmm. concepts from. And I was just like, this is great. I would love to have a story published in them because they have this very specific vision that's uh, an important one or, or an interesting one or a unique one. Um, and you see that with a lot of smaller presses, I find, which is really cool. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, I think we are over time though. Um, this is the <laughs> longest office hours in history, <laughs> um, but a good one. Um, awesome. Yeah. So I guess just before we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask if, uh, as a final question, if you could change one thing about the world, what would you change and why? There's a curveball for you. But hmm. I, wa- I wanted to ask you this because especially talking to you as a science fiction person, like, is that something tangible or is it something more speculative? I don't know, right? Because it's like, you know, there's the part of me that's still like the... 20-something-year-old watching the planet be slightly on fire. So, mm-hmm. like, that would be a nice thing to change. But it's also, like, do I focus on, like, nothing bad ever happens to kittens? That would also <laughs> be a great one. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's it's a hard question to ask, right? Because it's, like, I'm sure if you gave me time, I could think of a million little things to mm-hmm. change. But what's, like, exactly worth it? But I don't know. You know, like, I'm going to go with the being a 20-something and seeing the planet on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I would very much like that not to be the case. Mm-hmm. I, uh, as a 
well, a combination 20-something seeing Planet on the Fire and also biologist. Mm-hmm. It's constantly hearing the ecologists get like more and more sad. That's like mm-hmm. kind of draining in the field. Not not like bad right. draining, like, oh, these right. guys are bumming me out, but like like the continual like, oh, it's just going to get worse from here. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it's because so that some, might be mine. Yeah, because somebody asked me this uh, before, and I, I was thinking like, well, there's very like tangible things I could say. It's like, yeah, I would like because I do a lot of beach cleaning. I would like, mm-hmm. you know, there to be no ocean plastic pollution. And I'm like, but that's like another issue that like gets into. Well, does that mean the plastic industrial complex disappears? Well, what replaces it? Well, do they use more trees and rubber now? And that creates an environmental, yeah. you know, meltdown. <laughs> so it's like, it's such a rabbit hole, you know, issue. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I'm always curious, like, well, what, what could you focus on, right? Like, what could you actually do that doesn't have these, you know, side effect implications, like a Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut novel or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it spirals. I almost think once you add humans back to the mix as opposed to, you know, divine intervention, right. we're going to mess it up a little. So there's going to be some way where it just becomes a bad feedback loop. Right, exactly. It's like, okay, the divine hand came in, fixed that, but we found ways to still make things worse somehow, you know. Or to bring it back to our girl Ursula, there's always going to be a, an Omalas situation. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, th- th- there's a reason why that, you know, kid is in the basement dungeon or, or whatever, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I you just remind me. I can't wait to teach that um, next semester because it's been a while. But it's like um, the Omlas story. Just to before we go, I feel like I I can't wait to teach that one because every time I read it, more and more, it shouldn't work as a story. I feel like like yeah, it does everything wrong that you would want to do. And it like there's no protagonist or like even antagonist. I guess like there's like page long paragraphs. Like, there's no dialogue. Like, it's everything wrong with a short story, but I think it's one of the best short stories I've ever read somehow. We covered that, and There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury, which is also a sort of no-protagonist piece. Yeah. And it's very interesting to have somebody be like, this is a piece of writing that you're enjoying. Now break it down and see that, like, fundamentally every rule of writing that you've learned does not apply here. Well, it's easy to do that type of story poorly i feel like yes yeah Yeah. especially if you're um not a sort of polished writer i think i so i Mm -hmm. think that's sort of maybe part of the crux of it but that's why it's so cool when you see really great writers do something like that so well because it's like eh, that shouldn't normally work if you don't know exactly what you're doing i feel like and Mm -hmm. those those cats obviously got got that that down (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah well, thank you so much. This was uh, very, very insightful, um, as I hoped. So I hope you had a good time. Uh, I had a great time. Yeah. I very much like talking writing and also talking like science communication. So, I mean, I was just as excited, I think, when I saw your email. I was like, this sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's that's what's so cool about it. I never know contacting you know students uh, what they've been up to. So I was so excited to hear that you have the podcast, that you do the scientific communication um, all that stuff, which is just gold. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So, well, yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening, whoever you are, wherever you are. I hope you enjoyed this. And if you would like to hear more, we'll have new episodes moving forward with uh, other guests, with other really interesting interests, experiences, all that good stuff. So you can follow us, uh, Students of Life podcast now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So Spotify, 
uh, iTunes, uh, pretty much every podcast platform, I think. Just uh, give us a follow, subscribe, and you'll get new episodes when they come out, all that good stuff. So thanks again. Hope you guys enjoyed this, as I said. And until next time, be safe out there, be well, and hope to see you at the uh, next episode.